Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. New Hampshire ahead of the most consequential night in this political season to date. We have lots of students here with us in the studio, which is exciting. We've got lots of guests coming by over the course of the next hour, and we have so much to talk about because we are at a bit of a crossroads here in New Hampshire. There are kind of two paths that these next two days could open up. If Donald Trump wins convincingly on Tuesday, then this thing is all but over. And you don't exactly have to stretch your imagination to picture that happening. I mean, he's currently leading Nikki Haley by 19 points in the latest New Hampshire tracking poll. And remember, this is the state that is supposed to be the friendliest terrain for a Trump alternative. Live free or die, independent-minded people. The friendliest terrain also for Nikki Haley. So again, if Trump does win big on Tuesday, the Republican primary race would more or less come to a close. And Trump knows that which is why he's been working overtime to lock in endorsements and make a rematch with President Joe Biden start to look inevitable. At a rally here just last night, Trump lined the stage with South Carolina state leaders, a clear show of force of his support in Haley's home state, a state that is coming up in just a couple of weeks. But politics can also bring surprises. And the people of New Hampshire have a history of keeping things interesting, keeping us all on our toes. So Tuesday could also give us something different. It's, it's possible. Nikki Haley could win here, or she could even come closer than expected. And however briefly, and it may be brief, very brief, she could make Trump's nomination seem a tiny bit less inevitable. But her window of opportunity in this race is closing rapidly. And the days following the Iowa caucus, to me at least, it felt a little bit like she was limping toward the finish line. I mean, I've done a few of these, three presidential campaigns to be exact, and this moment, by the way, a couple days before a make or break primary is the time to sprint, not to limp. This is go for broke time, which is why it was kind of striking earlier this week when she refused to go after Trump over a jury's finding that he's liable for sexual abuse. You're the only woman in this race. How do you feel about your party's front runner being held liable for sexual abuse? Abuse. I mean, first of all, I haven't paid attention to his his cases, and I'm not a lawyer. All I know is that he's innocent until proven guilty, and when he's proven guilty and he's sitting in a courtroom, that's exactly what I'm talking about. You've got investigations on Trump and Biden. She says she's not a lawyer. Well, guess what? Neither am I. But I am positive that you do not have to be a lawyer to say being found liable for sexual abuse is bad. Why is it so hard for her to say that? Well... It's kind of because Haley is trying to walk a tightrope of competing against Trump while not alienating his base, something she's arguably done better than most of the other people in the primary. It's a tightrope she's been walking all campaign. But then, on Friday night, Donald Trump gave her an opening that she simply could not ignore. They never report the crowd on January 6th. You know, Nikki Haley, Nikki Haley, Nikki Haley 
You know, they did you know they destroyed all of the information, all of the evidence, everything deleted and destroyed all of it, all of it because of lots of things like Nikki Haley is in charge of security. We offered her 10,000 people, soldiers, National Guard, whatever they want. They turned it down. They don't want to talk about that. Okay, so he was clearly pretty confused there. He was spewing some sort of odd, baseless, fact-free story, I think, about Nancy Pelosi on January 6th. But he kept saying Nikki Haley. I mean, he said it a lot over and over and over again. And that opened the door for Haley to take her most direct shot at Trump to date, calling his mental fitness into question. Last night, Trump is at a rally. And he's going on and on mentioning me multiple times as to why I didn't take security during the Capitol riots. Why I didn't handle January 6th better. I wasn't even in D.C. on January 6th. I wasn't in office then. They're saying he got confused that he was talking about something else. He was talking about Nancy Pelosi. He mentioned me multiple times in that scenario. The concern I have is I'm not saying anything derogatory, but when you're dealing with the pressures of a presidency, we can't have someone else that we question whether they're mentally fit to do this. We can't. Well, I guess welcome to the fight, Nikki Haley, a couple days before the Republican primary in New Hampshire. But just to put a fine point on this, Donald Trump's closest Republican challenger is now directly calling his mental fitness into question. And no matter what happens here on Tuesday, that's pretty significant. It was no doubt an escalation from the candidate who has spent most of her campaign landing more glancing blows. The big question is, with just two days to go until the make or break election, is it enough or is it far too little, far too late? Starting us off here in Manchester, staff writer for The Atlantic, Mark Leibovich, former policy director for Mitt Romney and MSNBC contributor Lonnie Chen, NBC News correspondent Joshua Burns, and following the Haley campaign, NBC News correspondent Ali Vitali. So, Ali, let's start with you, uh, because you have been following the Haley campaign. I, I want to know from you, we saw her kind of escalate things over the course of the day yesterday. Are there any new attacks you've seen from her? And how has the crowd been responding? Well, look, Jen, I think you're right to point out that Trump's unforced error there on the stump allowed Haley to start saying the quiet part a lot louder. She had been alluding to this idea of age and generation over the course of her candidacy, specifically making a turn when we were in Iowa on the night of the caucuses, where she began making this refrain about Trump and Biden, Biden and Trump, really looping and lumping those names together, hoping that that sticks in the minds of voters. That fit, though, with the previous way that she had been trying to chart the path that you so aptly describe of the nimble dance that she's doing between trying to be the MAGA alternative without overly upsetting the MAGA base. And that's something that we saw her unable to do in Iowa. We're now watching her try to do something like that here in New Hampshire. But I think what's so striking is you and I are both in our third of these. I think most of the folks on the panel are on their multiple presidential election. We know how this typically goes. What's striking to me is that this is not a campaign that's trying to argue, well, we're going to get first, we're going to win here. That was the argument maybe a month, month and a half ago. But the consistent trend lines that we've seen in polls show that Trump is ahead. The Haley campaign is seeing the same thing. And it's why the candidate is making the 
case repeatedly. When I ask her about expectations, she's not saying I'm going to win here. She's saying I'm going to do better here than I did in Iowa. And after New Hampshire, I'll do better yet. But better isn't first. And I don't know how you get the nomination without winning a state. Mm Better is not first. That is a bumper sticker. Ali Vitelli, I know you have a lot more reporting to do. You're covering lots of campaigns. We'll let you get back to that. I'm just going to turn to my panel. Thank you so much for joining us. So, Dasha, you've been following Ron DeSantis. We're going to get to that for sure. You've also been following Nikki Haley. We were both at the same event last night. And one of the things that struck me was that when she did the line about chaos following Trump, which is a little bit of a passing blow, it's not Mm -hmm. that hard. That was the biggest applause by the crowd. What have you been seeing in the events you've been following? What are people looking for from her at these events? I mean, from both Haley and DeSantis, I am always surprised. People are fairly receptive, especially here in New Hampshire, but even in other states, uh, to those uh, kind of attacks on, on the former president. And look, both of these candidates have really struggled to find their footing on Trump from the beginning. And in all of my reporting on the DeSantis campaign, on the Haley campaign, there are so many sources that have said to me, that is the central problem. Because why do people love Trump so much? Because he's a fighter. People like that bully mentality. People told me early in, in, in the Tim Scott campaign, one of the reasons he's struggling is because people feel like he's too nice. They like him, but they don't feel like he has that fighting spirit. And so there was a, a lot of uh, reflection, sort of autopsies being done of, of what happened early on with, with both DeSantis and with Haley and a lot of folks telling me, look, if they had just come out swinging, there would have been respect, not just from uh, Trump voters, but potentially even from Trump himself, who, you know, doesn't sometimes respect someone that, that can really stand up for themselves. There's a little fight. It's like a late fighter, late fighter in the uh, late round. It might rounder. be coming too little too late. They're starting to find their messaging. DeSantis has been more sharp with him. So has Haley. But is it coming too late? So I talked to a bunch of voters outside of this event last night. Let's play a little bit of that. And then, Mark, I want to talk to you about what this coalition might look like. Have you decided that you're going to support on Tuesday? We have not. We are with some of those irascible uh, independents from New Hampshire has through there. So we've, you know, we've been here a long time, been to many primaries, and I always like to gather my information and see where I'm going. So have you decided who you're going to support on Tuesday? Yes, I think I have. I think I'm a Nikki supporter. Are you open to supporting Joe Biden? I am. I voted for him in the last election. Um, I haven't been pleased with some of his policies. What have you been most displeased with? Uh, just, just the spending um, and and his treatment of the, the border. I think we've got real problems that he He's failing to recognize and do something with, um, but he's a much better choice than than Trump. If it were Trump and Biden, which it very well could be, third party, there could be a third party. It's just party not candidate. appealing, right? I mean, so yeah, yeah, I would. And, and is it Nikki Hill you'd hope to run on the third party? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. There are other people. Are you out people there. you wish? You're saying no, that. I guess I'm not that enthusiastic. So, so what struck me here was it was not a monolithic group, I think it's fair to say. I mean, there were definitely some people who loved Nikki Haley there. There were some people who di- didn't necessarily love her, were undecided, but liked her better than Trump. There were some Biden people there. What does this coalition look like? And there are, is there enough of the coalition to get her across the finish line? Uh, I would describe the coalition as loose, maybe a ragtag, um, and certainly not enthusiastic. I mean, it seemed very resigned if you look at interviews like this, but also in, in polling data that we saw out of Iowa, um, so far out of here. I mean, there are the 
Boston Globe tracking poll, which people look at very closely in these last days, show that most people have actually made up their minds, which shows you that there is a kind of, um, again, resignation. But also it shows you that Nikki Haley has like, okay, all right, maybe if I can do this, it shows to a lack. It shows a lack of enthusiasm in some ways, which I think has been characteristic of her supporters. Yeah, it was kind of an issue in Iowa, too. Now, to go back to this question of like, what could you have done earlier? Right. I, I to be fair, having done messaging campaigns yes. for a long time, I think a lot of these candidates were in a tricky spot because Chris mm-hmm. Christie went hardcore after Trump. Then more people didn't like him in the Republican primary who liked him. Would it have made a difference if Nikki Haley, to Dasha's point of what people are telling her, but sometimes they tell you that and that's not really what they want. Hindsight 2020. Yeah, right. I, mean, I'm, I, I don't know really if there is a message that would have been effective at garnering more Republican support. And most of these primaries going forward are going to be Republican voters, right? So New Hampshire is a little bit different in that sense. You know, it's always a question of lanes when you're thinking about primaries, like what's the lane you're going to travel in? And Chris Christie was traveling in the anti-Trump lane. Mm-hmm. You obviously have Trump. And then you had the sort of everybody else lane, which was really the same lane that when Scott was in the race, DeSantis, Nikki Haley, they've kind of been in the same lane. And the challenge in that lane is that there isn't necessarily a single message, right? Yeah. The message is I am the alternative, but wait and see how things play out. And then if I'm the alternative, great, vote for me. And that's kind of, I think, where we are now. The challenge for Nikki Haley is Ron DeSantis is still in the race. Which, so which it makes it more complicated for let's her. Let's talk about Ron DeSantis. So you did some interesting reporting about what's going on in his campaign. It involves a jigsaw puzzle. I'll let you explain from yeah, there. It does involve a puzzle. Look, I think there are, there are a number of stories over the course of reporting in this campaign that sort of... Um, came to represent different aspects of why he never quite took off in the way that a lot of people expected him to. Remember, at the outset, he was the guy. He was going to be the next standard bearer of the party, right? And then that never quite manifested. But in the last days leading up to the Iowa caucus, um, multiple staffers from the Never Back Down uh, Iowa Field Operation headquarters, where they were running all of their get-out-the-vote, reached out to me and my producer, Abby Brooks, and said that their CEO and chairman was spending a significant amount of time during these critical days working on a jigsaw puzzle. And as one does, as one on does, a presidential and, and, and they were so uh, concerned by this and sort of frustrated by it that one of them took a picture and, and sent it to us. And um, the, the sentiment was like, look, there are paid volunteers, uh, paid staffers, volunteers, all these folks dedicating themselves to um, to helping DeSantis win. And the guy that's supposed to be in charge of getting this win for him in Iowa is spending time doing something other than focusing on the caucuses. Now, Scott Wagner, the, the man in question here, says the puzzle was already there. Everyone in the office can it was a, a team building thing. But I think it's just emblematic of, of in our reporting on this campaign, uh, people constantly pointing to this sort of mismanagement and uh, wasted efforts as, as really plaguing the campaign from the beginning and sort of a vacuum of, of leadership where this is um, a guy who from the outset was relying on this massive victory in Florida and ended up empowering people that were loyal to him rather than people who actually had experience on presidential campaigns. And then you had a a bad launch. You had money that the campaign ran out of money very quickly um, and a lack of message that that, um, all of our sources pointed to. All challenges. Each one of those alone would be a huge challenge. So, Mark, I want to ask you, you wrote this piece because this is always we're looking back at what the candidates could have done or should have done differently. That was that was titled. What is Nikki Haley even talking about? And this struck me because the truth is when you're on the rise as a candidate, it's a much easier place to be than when you're in the spotlight. And then people Mm -hmm. like you and you and others start paying attention to what exactly they're talking about. So tell us a little bit more about that piece and what you've observed. Well, I would say that that 
Nikki Haley, I will give her her credit. She's an extremely gifted political athlete. I mean, yeah. I think she She's clearly great at rose, debates. She rose above the rest of a, a pretty motley field in the debates. I think we all saw that. And I think that's why a lot of people really gave her a pretty close look. That's also evident in the room she goes to. Yeah. I mean, she's very good at events. She's a very probably the best retail politician in the field right now. And again, I mean, Ron DeSantis isn't exactly the greatest competition here. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to go out and sort of watch her up close and get a sense of really you know, where she was going with all this. And I do think that one sense you get from watching her more than once is once you scratch the surface, it's really quite unclear not only what her message is, but why she's even doing this. I think until the last few days, it seemed very, very, you know, glancing blow is the key, is the word you keep hearing. But it, she seemed very, very terrified, really, of laying any kind of glove on Donald Trump. I think in the last few days, maybe she's found her voice a little bit around yeah. the Trump-Biden um, alternative message. I think Trump's obviously given her a lot of material. But again, there's a sense that she never really gave a sense of why she was in this to begin with. And whether she really wanted to win or whether she was you know, playing for second, which you know, it sounds like Trump sort of foreclosed on a couple of days ago and cheated too. And maybe that signals maybe a little pivot in the last few days, which probably won't do anything. I mean, lots to watch. I don't want to cut you off, but we're going to make you come back because we'll be here for three days. Um, thank you so much, Mark Levich, Lenny Chen, Dasha Burns. Lots of reporting you're going to be out doing. We'll talk to you all again over the next couple of days. Really appreciate all of you. Coming up, Donald Trump's closing message in New Hampshire, I must have immunity from prosecution and how he's planning to spend his data morale. It's not here. He's going to be testifying in his defamation trial in New York, apparently. Andrew Weissman and Lisa Rubin were both in courtroom with Trump this week, and they're coming up next. We're back live from New Hampshire. Have you met All Modern? All Modern brings you the best of modern furniture, and they deliver it for free in days. You heard that right. Days. That way, you get your sofa ASAP and can sit comfortably while figuring out your other modern must-haves. At All Modern, you'll find only the best of modern. From Scandi to mid-century, minimalist to maximalist, every piece is hand-vetted for quality by our team of experts and designed for real life. That's modern made simple. Shop now at allmodern.com. This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. What makes eHarmony so special? You. No, really. The profiles and conversations are different on eHarmony, and that's what makes it great. eHarmony's compatibility quiz brings out everyone's personality on their profile and highlights similarities on your discovery page. So it's even easier to start a conversation that actually goes somewhere. So what are you waiting for? Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. A very quick break. Every once in a while, or often, Donald Trump comes out and says something so outrageous and so revealing that you almost do a double take. That's what happened this week when he argued that a president, quote, this is a quote, a president must have full immunity without which it would be impossible for him or her to properly function. Then he goes on to say that even events that cross the line, his words, must fall under total immunity. Even events that cross the line. I mean, Trump pretends to be speaking theoretically here, but it's pretty clear he's referring to himself. After all, he's the only president, current or former, to ever be criminally indicted. So when he says the president should be excused for crossing the line, he's all but conceding that he did something illegal. Of course, Trump's claim of presidential immunity will soon be decided by the D.C. Circuit and could even head to the Supreme Court. And while neither is expected to rule that a president is above the law, that claim is now part of Trump's closing campaign message here in New Hampshire, where he compared himself 
to a rogue cop. You will have the rogue, we call it the rogue cop, the bad apple, and perhaps you'll have that also with president. But there's nothing you can do about that. You're going to have to give the president, you're going to have to allow a president, any president, to have immunity so that that president can act and do what he feels and what his group of advisors feel is the absolute right thing. So having immunity is so important, and I hope the Supreme Court has the courage to do that. So that's the closing campaign message in New Hampshire for Donald Trump. And his closing campaign event might not be in New Hampshire at all, but rather a New York City courtroom. Trump reportedly wants to testify tomorrow in the second trial stemming from E. Jean Carroll's defamation lawsuit against him. Joining me now, Andrew Weissman is the former general counsel at the FBI and a senior member of special counsel Robert Mueller's team. And Lisa Rubin, her first time on our show, which I can hardly believe. So she's a brilliant genius lawyer. She's an MSNBC legal analyst. She's been working her tail off covering all of these trials. Lisa, so glad to have you here. So uh, okay, Andrew, here. let me start with you. It's great. I'm so happy. Uh, Andrew, Trump laid bare his argument for immunity in pretty shocking terms last night. I just played the clip for everyone. He basically compared himself to a rogue cop. That's how I heard it. You said comments like the, those make it more important that the court issue a strong ruling against him. So talk us through that and what that might look like. Sure. Well, I think that what Donald Trump is doing, since he's really not going to win in the courts here, is I think he's making the election a referendum on his legal woes, um, whether it's the Eugene Carroll case, which, you know, Lisa's been covering, um, or the criminal trials. And he's doing everything he can to avoid a judgment from a jury in those cases, but instead is going directly to the voters to essentially say, you know, help me out here. If you um, actually vote for me, all of this will go away. I think that the chances that the D.C. Circuit is going to say that he is immune and the Supreme Court even taking the case, even even if they do take mm. the case, which is not at all clear. Um, I also do not think that he is going to find five votes. He, in fact, there may not be any votes for his proposition. That, that's giving people some hope who are watching this, Andrew, which is always important in these dark times. Lisa, I'm obviously here in New Hampshire, uh, but Trump is reportedly planning to be back in New York tomorrow. You probably are going to be there, too. You were in the courtroom all last week. What can we expect if he's there? Will he testify? Will he get cold feet? What are you preparing for? You know, Jen, we have to prepare that he's going to come, if for no other reason than the sheer logistics of how disruptive his presence in any courthouse or courtroom has been. However, my expectation is that, like he has before, he is bluffing that he will not come to testify tomorrow. That's in part because there's a very limited range of issues about which he could permissibly testify. This mm. trial is just about damages. It's not about whether he sexually assaulted her. It's not about whether he defamed her or even continues to defame her with each passing day of the campaign. So, Ultimately, I predict he won't come. And indeed, our folks in New Hampshire have not seen mm. any indicia that he's preparing to testify by taking the time, for example, for witness prep. Well, that's interesting. We will we will see. We'll see. But it'll be an interesting thing to watch. So, Andrew, I mean, one of the reasons it's weirdly important for us to all focus or read Truth, Truth Social and pay attention to that is 
it's part of where Trump is showing how obsessed he is with talking about E. Jean Carroll. I mean, he basically can't stop talking about her. He tweeted or he posted about 40 times about her in one day a couple of weeks ago. How does the jury weigh a financial penalty that would actually get him to stop? I mean, is there anything that would get him to stop? And, and what would it take? What kind of massive judgment would it be like the kind of massive judgment we saw them do against Rudy Giuliani last month? Yeah, that's a great um, question. One of the oddities that Lisa and I have experienced when you go to the courtroom is that the evidence is happening in real time. So you will have the jury being told about what Donald Trump said, you know, hours ago, continuing to defame uh, E. Jean Carroll. That, remember, is exactly what happened with Rudy Giuliani, Mm -hmm. where he, on the first day, went out and said, um, defamatory things that then were played to the jury. Um, and the, um, the Eugene Carroll side is going to sum up to mm-hmm. the jury saying that for punitive damages, you need to ask yourself, what is the amount of money that it will take to get him to stop or to at least think twice before he does this? Second, with respect to compensatory damages, an expert was on the stand saying, this is the amount of money it takes to repair her reputation. Well, if Donald Trump is going out and continuing to defame her day in and day out, that money also would require, you know, would go up. So I think you're going to hear very strong arguments based on the continuing uh, statements. But again, to the, to the main point here is that Donald Trump is not playing for the courtroom. Um, what he is saying yeah. is going to hurt him in the courtroom, but it is really saying, I want a judgment politically on this. It's such a confusing thing at times to watch. Why why important to talk about? Lisa, in the seconds we have left, what do you make of this question of what size judgment or how his outside actions and words could impact that question? Well, you know, Jen, when you're considering punitive damages as a jury, it's entirely relevant to consider what it would take to stop a continuing harm. So when E. Jean Carroll's lawyers are writing to the court and saying, while we have been in court, he has made public statements, that is a deliberate attempt to give the jury permission to increase that punitive damages award. But I'll also point out to you and our viewers, they're not asking to insert his additional Truth Social posts, for example, because you could debate who's actually posting on Truth Social. Is it Donald Trump or one of his aides like Dan Scavino? What they are doing is saying, you need to consider the words coming out of the horse's mouth at his post-trial press conferences. That, to me, is meaningful as well. The horse has said a lot. Uh, Lisa Rubin and Andrew Weissman, thank you both so much for joining me this afternoon. Really appreciate it. And coming up, Donald Trump's pressure campaign to tank a bipartisan border deal. Spoiler alert, he doesn't want a solution. He doesn't want a deal. He wants the problem to run on. We'll be right back. So there is one issue on the minds of voters in Iowa and New Hampshire that might surprise you, given the location of both of these states in a map of the United States. More than a third of Iowa caucus scores last weekend said immigration was the most important issue to them. Again, that's Iowa, which is over a thousand miles away from the U.S.-Mexico border. I think it's safe to say that those scary migrant caravans everyone speaks about, specifically Trump and others, won't exactly be reaching the homes of Iowa Republicans anytime soon. But guess what? Fox News sure will. There may be a connection there. Now, take a listen to what some voters told me here in New Hampshire just last night. 
what are the biggest issues that you focus on as you're trying to make your decision in the next couple of days? I guess, like a lot of other people, the economy and definitely the border, meaning the southern border and the northern border, being in New Hampshire, right? Is the border one of your a top issue oh, for you? Absolutely. And what worries you the most about the border? Um, well, it's, a, it's everything. I mean, the fentanyl coming in, the fact that um, we've got all these illegal, you know, you don't know who's coming across that border. You don't know how many terrorists. Now, presumably, given how much voters care about these issues, leading Republicans who run the country, who want to run the country again, let's say, would be eager to find a solution to this issue, right? I mean... There's a deal being currently worked on in the Senate right now. Senate Republicans have been working on a bipartisan package that includes increased border security, something they say they want, and new funding also for Ukraine. It's definitely imperfect, this bill. But just sticking with the Republican electorate here, lots of Republican leaders are out there saying this deal is basically as good as it's ever going to get. To those who think that if President Trump wins, which I hope he does, that we can get a better deal, you won't. When the bill is released and everyone, particularly conservatives and President Trump, sees the tools that will be available to a President Trump should he win the election, to lose this opportunity to get it passed into law, I think is malpractice. Some people say, oh, well, you know, Biden wants it now because it's helpful to him politically. Okay. I want border security. That's that's what I that's what I told my constituents that I would do for them. So if we can get that deal, that's that's enough brand. Dan Crenshaw, Lindsey Graham, Tom Tillis, three very conservative Republicans, not exactly members of the Liberal Caucus here. They're all saying this is a no-brainer. But of course, there is just one big problem. The president actually uh, just got off the phone with me right before the show, and he said he has spoken to you about this deal and that he is against it, and he urged you to be against this deal. He was extremely—President Trump was extremely adamant about that. Um, your reaction to that, given the fact that, look, he already—he knows how to do this enforcement stuff. You don't need some new bill coming out of the, uh, the Senate to get the border enforced. Yeah, President Trump is not wrong. He and I have been talking about this um, uh, pretty frequently. I talked to him uh, night before last about the same subject. There it is. You can always rely on Mike Johnson, by the way, to take direction from his boss, Donald Trump, when necessary. But we all know the real reason Trump wants to tank this deal. He doesn't actually care about solving the problem at the border. He wants the problem. He wants the issue to run on because it is the fear-mongering, the scare tactics that he is betting on to excite his voters and his base. Look, the border is broken. The immigration system is outdated, hasn't been updated in decades. And yes, this deal is far from perfect. But if Trump is successful in tanking this deal, Democrats should not let voters forget it. Because Trump's fear-mongering about immigration, his constant drumbeat about the border, will continue all the way until, the, until November. It's probably going to get worse. And voters will need to be reminded that Republicans had a chance to actually do something about the border security, something many of them wanted to do. And Donald Trump wouldn't let them. Congressman Rokana is standing by here in Manchester, and he joins me. Have you met All Modern? All Modern brings you the best of modern furniture, and they deliver it for free in days. You heard that right. Days. That way, you get your sofa ASAP and can sit comfortably while figuring out your other modern must-haves. 
At All Modern, you'll find only the best of modern. From Scandi to mid-century, minimalist to maximalist, every piece is hand-vetted for quality by our team of experts and designed for real life. That's modern made simple. Shop now at allmodern.com. This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. What makes eHarmony so special? You. No, really. The profiles and conversations are different on eHarmony, and that's what makes it great. eHarmony's compatibility quiz brings out everyone's personality on their profile and highlights similarities on your discovery page. So it's even easier to start a conversation that actually goes somewhere. So what are you waiting for? Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. Next, we'll be right back. Donald Trump has been giving us a taste of what the next few weeks will be like if Nikki Haley gives him a scare here in New Hampshire. It doesn't even necessarily mean winning, just coming close, because he's been lobbing some increasingly racist attacks against her. He's been mocking her given name and falsely suggesting that she wasn't born in this country. At the same time, Haley, in my view, is bizarrely doubling down on her message that America has never been a racist country. You're talking about the ideals of America, but... America was founded institutionally on many racist precepts, including slavery. But when you look, it said all men are created equal. I think the intent, the intent was to do the right thing. Now, did they have to go fix it along the way? Yes. But I don't think the intent was ever that we were going to be a racist country. Joining me now is Democratic Congressman Ro Khanna. So you were here on President Biden's campaign team behalf. They're doing a write-in campaign. We're going to come spend some time with you later this afternoon. Sounds like it's well organized. There is so much enthusiasm here for the president. Anyone who says that the president doesn't have enthusiasm needs to come to New Hampshire. Progressive and moderates, lines outside houses. Well, we're going to come spend some time with you and bring it back over the next couple of days to our shows. But I do want to ask you, I, I recently reread Nikki Haley's speech from 2015 when she announced the Confederate flag was being taken down. It's a bit of a different tune now. And I just wanted to get your take on what you make of her response to what is clearly race, racist attacks from Donald Trump. You know, it's disappointing. I wanted as an Indian American for her to do well. I mean, obviously, I don't agree with her. But here's the thing. Her parents and my parents have the same story. Until 1965, Asian Americans weren't allowed into the United States. It was the civil rights movement that opens up immigration so that Nikki Haley's parents can come here. My parents can come here. And I just think she has an opportunity to talk as a daughter of immigrants about her story and inspire people. And instead, she's appealing to a base that's never going to vote for her. Yeah, that speech really does touch on that. So it's been striking as I reread that recently. So one of the things that's interesting to me about sort of the strategy in this primary, I spent some time with the Biden campaign recently. You've spent, obviously, a lot of time with them, is that they're eager for this fight with Donald Trump. And in some ways, it would be better for them if it was clear sooner so that they could run the race. But what are they telling you about how eager they are for the primary to be over and their preparations for that? I think the president is has found his voice. He's strong in his speech in Valley Forge. He wants to draw the contrast. He wants to say that, look, he stood up for the middle class, working class. Donald Trump had four years, large tax cuts to very wealthy people. He's bringing manufacturing back. Donald Trump didn't do anything in terms of new factories. And most importantly, 
President Biden loves democracy. He loves the town halls. He loves the democratic spirit. Donald Trump doesn't represent that. He's ready to draw the contrast. And people like they have his whole career are underestimating him. And come here. I look at the enthusiasm for the president here organically. He's not even on the ballot. And House party after House party packed. Not because of me, because they want to vote for him. He also loves people. He's an extrovert. It's quite exhausting. I think it's fair to admit. One of the challenges they've had that they've articulated is that people still don't think Donald Trump will be the nominee. A surprising number of people. Do you expect once that is clear, if that is clear, we still have more to go here, that more people will see a shift in the polls for the president? I do. I think, look, people have been almost rooting in some sense of the media for uh, Chris Christie or Nikki Haley. For some of us who are in the House, it's been apparent that Donald Trump was going to be the nominee because all the Republican House members, many of them are supporting him. And I think as that becomes clearer, there's going to be more scrutiny, not on all of Donald Trump's legal troubles, but on his policies. I mean, he ran saying forgotten Americans, I hollowed out manufacturing, and he didn't do anything. And this president actually has delivered. I mean, one of the stories that this president is going to get to tell is he's had a manufacturing revolution in this country, new industries, new factories, all the things that Donald Trump was talking about this president's delivering. I can't wait till he gets to tell that story. Your old friend, Senator Bernie Sanders, would definitely like him to be making that argument stronger. Do you agree with that? And what do you think he means by that? What, what would Senator Sanders like to see that he's not seeing? I think what Senator Sanders would say uh, is look at FDR in 1936. He got a lot done, but he said that people still were struggling. And Senator Sanders would say we've got to become a working class party. Let's talk about a second term where President Biden will really fight to make sure we get the living wage, where he's going to fight to make sure we get child care, $10 a day, fight for more affordable housing. Uh, and he should be honest with folks. Look, he's trying to overturn 40 years of neoliberalism that gutted the middle class. He's not going to do that in two or four years, probably won't even do it in eight years. But he's trying to reverse this absolute free market uh, ideology and center the working class. And I, I think President Biden is going to make a great economic argument. So in the limited time we have left, I'm going to ask you a hard question, yes. um, which is Donald Trump is potentially going to be in a courtroom tomorrow. He sometimes blocks out the sun or all the space uh, when he is in the courtroom. How do Democrats compete with that in terms of getting their message out? I think we stopped to make this about all of Donald Trump's scandals. People know that. Here's what we should say. Who's going to deliver for the American public? We understand that the American dream has slipped away. People are getting paid less and their costs are going up. And Joe Biden the middle class Joe Biden, Scranton Joe Biden, has done that his whole life, and he's done that for four years. It's not perfect. There were obstacles. The Senate is a hard place, but that's his fight. Donald Trump did tax cuts for the rich. The economic argument, I think, is what's going to win this, because ultimately elections are about what you're going to do for people, not the personal picadellos and scandals of candidates. Picadellos, Congressman Rukan, <laughs> I'm looking forward to putting my hat and gloves and everything on and going to spend some time out there with you this Have afternoon. Have the boots. Have the boots. Uh, boots too. <laughs> I have them on now. Thank you so much Thank for joining you. me. Uh, up next, the Dean Phillips campaign is asking us to name a more iconic duo than him and Andrew Yang. Challenge accepted. How about NBC's Mike Memoli and Ali Vitelli? They're working hard on the trail. Mike Memoli joins me after the break to talk about what success looks like for Joe Biden here in New Hampshire when his name isn't even on the ballot. We'll be right back. The big story here in New Hampshire over the next couple of days is, of course, the Republican primary and the race between Donald Trump and Nikki Haley. 
But President Biden is facing a rather unique situation of his own. We were just talking about with Congressman Khanna earlier because he's not even on the ballot on the Democratic side. So if voters here want to cast their ballots for the president, they'll have to write his name in. And there's a whole local effort to get voters to do just that. Joining me now is NBC News White House correspondent Mike Memoli, who's been following what's going on here on the Democratic side. So, Mike, it's hard to explain this, but yeah. do your best quick and dirty version of like how we got here. Well, we got here starting four years ago when I was following candidate Joe Biden all over the state and they saw the writing on the wall. They knew the numbers were not looking good for them. And so he pulled up stakes. We were outside a polling place on primary day and he said, I'm going to South Carolina. We chased him. We got him there. So the argument that they were making was that the first two states, Iowa and New Hampshire, don't represent the diversity of the Democratic Party who should be choosing our nominee. So once he got into office, took over the DNC, as you do as the president, put South Carolina at the front of the line. New Hampshire has a law that says we have to go first. We have to go seven days before any similar election. So that's what's happened here. The president didn't file, but there are some others on the ballot here who are campaigning, of course. And the local supporters wanted to make sure that they were demonstrating support for the president. So that's where we are. The president may win a primary for the first time in his four times running for president without actually being on the ballot. Which would be something. OK, so it's it's very hard to poll a write-in campaign, uh, although he is doing better here against Donald Trump than a lot of other mm -hmm. states. What does ex what does success look like for them? How are they defining that? I would say that the Biden campaign is lowering expectations about what's going to happen here, but they're really just ignoring what's going to happen here. Are they giving a number at all? Well, or? privately, they'll point to the fact that there are so few precedents for this. They'll look at maybe Lisa Murkowski running as a write-in candidate, but that was a general election. You had a Democratic nominee, a Republican nominee, and a write-in, so there really is no blueprint. What would be, I think, the danger zone when you talk to Democrats here who've seen many, many, many primaries— they're nervous about this because of what happened in 1968. Lyndon Johnson did not put himself on the ballot. Eugene McCarthy got 40 percent of the vote. That was a surprising showing for a challenger. And even though Lyndon Johnson won the primary, he was out of the race three weeks later. And so when a lot of Democrats are nervous about President Biden, whether he's strong enough to lead the ticket again, a, a disappointing showing less than 50 percent here might be a problem. Less for Biden than campaign. 50. OK, you spent some time with Dean Phillips, who is on the ballot right. here this week. Uh, what does he articulate as his strategy and how does he define success? Well, he said to me that if he got in the 20 percent range, that would be tremendous, was his word. Uh, you look at the fact that he is the only sort of elected Democrat who's running. Marion Williamson is also here in the state campaigning. I think he needs to finish ahead of her to be sure. And a lot of people here I've been talking to say she might actually beat him. That would be a big setback. But he said he's in this race until the convention. He plans to go to Chicago because he wants to argue, look, the data points will only continue to favor me that Joe Biden can't win. I was talking, though, to some other local Democrats, and they say too much of his message, and I saw it at a couple of events, is about process. It's about what the DNC did. Mm. It's not about what his vision is for the country. And so they're criticizing him, saying, listen, maybe he would have more of a chance if he was running about issues and not just about a, po a policy debate. Process they want a contrast. There are some things Democrats may be upset about. So when it, when it comes to the Biden team, uh, what are they um, hoping happens here? I mean, do they I, I have my own views on this, but do they hope that this is wrapped up quickly? Would they like to see them duking it out for a while? What does your reporting tell you? Yeah, they're only really looking at the New Hampshire primary because they do see that this could be the end of the Republican nomination fight. And that's why, as you heard, the, I'll paraphrase President Biden, don't uh, tell me what you value, show me your schedule, and I'll tell you what you value. He is going to be in Northern Virginia 
on Tuesday holding his first joint rally, campaign rally with the vice president, talking about what they think is going to be the major issue, one of the major issues this year, abortion rights. They are casting this as sort of the kickoff for them of the general election. They're ready to have this general election argument for the reasons you were talking about earlier. A lot of Republicans, in, even in polls, are saying they don't think not the nominee will be Donald Trump. They think the choice between, you know, the almighty and the alternative will help President Biden once it's narrowed that way. They love that. OK, in the seconds we have left, yeah. how do you define in a sentence the vibes here, as we like to say? This is my fifth New Hampshire primary, Jen. I was here in 08, as you were in 16, when we had really competitive races on both sides. But even in 2012 and 2020, when it was only one party, there was still an energy. The seven days between Iowa and New Hampshire for a political reporter is really the best time to be a political reporter. It just doesn't feel the same here. You only have a couple candidates really campaigning here. It just doesn't have that same energy. But we've seen surprises in the last 48 hours. So maybe there'll New be Hampshire still some of that New Hampshire magic. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, Mike Menley, thank you so much for Great joining me. Uh, and we'll be right back after a quick break. So stay with us. That does it for me today, but we're just getting started here in Manchester. We're working on a big show for tomorrow night at 8 p.m. Eastern. We'll have lots of guests here in New Hampshire, and we might be talking about a frontrunner's day in court in New York. We'll see what he does. And then I'll be back on Tuesday to kick off New Hampshire primary coverage at 4 p.m. Then at 6 p.m. Eastern, Rachel Maddow picks up our special coverage with Steve Kornacki. They'll be breaking down results, of course, at the big board. Have you met All Modern? All Modern brings you the best of modern furniture, and they deliver it for free in days. You heard that right. Days. That way, you get your sofa ASAP and can sit comfortably while figuring out your other modern must-haves. At All Modern, you'll find only the best of modern, from Scandi to mid-century, minimalist to maximalist. Every piece is hand-vetted for quality by our team of experts and designed for real life. That's modern made simple. Shop now at allmodern.com.